Welcome to the Pearson Center's webinar on the broad theme of COVID and beyond, and today a special conversation with three former premiers. My name is Francesca Iacorto, and I'm a board member of the Pearson Center. I'm also the Senior Director of Public Affairs at the National Airlines Council of Canada. As many of you will know, the Pearson Center is a progressive think tank that was formed eight years ago this month. Since April of last year, we have been pursuing a project called COVID and Beyond, recognizing that we have a lot of issues to address as we plan for the recovery and rebuilding of Canada that will be slow and long. Fortunately, there's tremendous interest in the subject matter with some 8,000 Canadians having joined us in webinars over the past 10 months. This is an important time to reimagine Canada and think big. I want to take a moment to thank our sustaining sponsors without whom these sessions would not be possible. One of them is the Canada's Building Trades Unions, and the other is the International Association of Firefighters. So very big thank you to both those organizations. On the format, we will have a discussion with our guests for about 45 minutes, and then around 7.45 p.m., we will take questions from you, the audience. So please uh, send your questions in the question box that you will find on your screen. Now, with respect to our discussion, as we address the big challenges facing Canada, we thought who better than to talk to than three former premiers who have been at the head of the table forced to make tough decisions and choices. They are all household names. As such, I will keep their introductions very brief so we maximize the time we hear from them. We have with us today Christy Clark, who is Premier of British Columbia from 2011 to 2017, and served as well as Deputy Premier of the province from 2001 to 2005. She is now a Senior Advisor at Bennett Jones. We also have with us today Bernard Lord, who was Premier of New Brunswick from 1999 to 2006, and is currently CEO of Medivy and sits on boards of several companies and organizations. And last but by no means least, we have with us today Dalt McGinty, who is Premier of Ontario from 2003 to 2013. He's currently a Corporate Director and Business Advisor, and I'm happy to say a frequent advisor to us at the Pearson Centre. They will be in conversation with Andrew Cardozo, who's the President of the Pearson Centre and a columnist with the Hill Times. So on that note, over to you, Andrew. Thank you, Francesca, and welcome everybody. Uh, it's, a, it's an important day today in, in the political life of America as it is for Canada and really the world. Uh, we'll be getting to, to those issues in a few minutes, but I do want to start by talking to our, our three guests, uh, these three premiers who have been, as, as Francesca said, being at the head of the table, uh, having to make important decisions. Um, let me start by just asking you about your lives since politics. Um, tell, tell us about what you've been up to and, and how, how transition has been for you as you left politics and went into private life. And I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Dalton McGinty. Sure. Thanks, Andrew. And first of all, let me say it's an honor to be with my uh, colleagues. And we, were, um, we had uh, extraordinary opportunities in Canada to serve as premiers in our respective provinces, and not very many Canadians get to do that. Uh, and it was a joy to work with Bernard and with Christine. It's great to see you again. Um, you know, if I had to put two words to the transition, I'd put those two words as not easy. It, um, you know, you go from 100 calls a day to virtually none. And you have such an all-consuming job that you inevitably begin to identify with the job. But the fact is you're not the job. Uh, so the problem is when you no longer have the job, you begin to question who you are, what you can do. So you got to reinvent yourself. My wife was delighted. She kept saying, we're going normal. And so we found a way forward and um, got into um, some other, uh, we got into some other things, all of which are, are very enjoyable, fulfilling, philanthropic and, uh, and otherwise. But, you know, as somebody once said, the best in the private sector just can't compare to the worst day in government. It's just such a wonderful opportunity and privilege and calling, frankly, to serve as the premier of your province. So it's a difficult transition, but 
I made it through. I'm on the other side and enjoying life now. And there's life good for you. Uh, Christy Clark, your, your thoughts? Well, similar to Dalton's, and by the way, Bernard Dalton, it's nice to see you both. Nice to see you um, again. Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I would say, you know, it's, it is a little bit, it's bumpy for sure. And I think, you know, this whole thing about identity, men, you know, we normally think of men in the workplace. We, you know, we've talked about this for years. Men become identified with their jobs and women don't be, you know, in this. Well, I think that that's not really true anymore. Um, women get just as identified with our jobs. And then, so I think about my dad, he retired from teaching in a public school. He was devoted to it all of his life. When he retired, he didn't know what to do with himself. So I don't think it's kind of an uncommon problem. Um, but I do think that for politicians, you are not just in the job. You are two people, a politician. So my dad in his soul was a teacher, but he was more than a teacher to everybody in the neighborhood. And I, you know, there's kind of that sense of what you do and who you are, but it's also that sense of what everybody else thinks you are. And when you're not, when they don't think you're a politician, they all want to know what the heck are you now. And for me, um, you know, I didn't, I wasn't married uh, at the time, so I didn't have a husband to say, wow, we're out of here. My son was like, wow, this is so great that you're done. The, I would say though, it was a peak experience is how I would describe it. It's something that you never get to do again, that only, you know, 30 or 40 people before you have ever done in your province. And it's kind of like winning that ultra marathon that you're only going to do once in your life. You're never going to go back to it. You're always going to remember it. It's going to be probably the most fulfilling thing you've ever done. But you do need to figure out what you're going to do next and how you're going to define yourself and refine yourself after that, which isn't easy. But, you know, I think we're, three of us are examples of how it's possible. And and do you think people recognize the experience you gained as you as you left politics? Yes, I think it is hard for people to understand exactly what politicians bring. And there's a lot of cynicism about who, you know, what that job is. And, um, you know, not everybody wants to be associated with politicians, I think, sometimes. But I think particularly for premiers, you know, they can look at our broad record and see what we achieved. And I think the thing that I think the thing that politicians bring outside of politics to any board table or business is an ability to do um, to really figure to figure out strategy both long term and in a granular way to set the steps up to get there and to help people figure out what all the pitfalls are along the way, which I think is increasingly important in this world where there's not just one bottom line anymore and where stakeholders will often change the dimensions and the direction of any 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 outcome that you get. Yeah. Uh, Bernard Lord, what are your thoughts about uh, post-political life? Well, it, it's actually very good. Um, but, you know, like Christy and Dalton, and nice to see you both again. Um, there is a transition that's important, but it is, it's, it's an, in my mind, when I was first elected, I was so young. Uh, I was elected premier, I was 33. I knew it wasn't going to last forever. So when I started, I knew, okay, let's do this the best way that I can with the team that we had and, and the impacts it had with the family, but eventually it would be over. And when it was over, I'm not saying it was easy, but I'd been thinking about that, that we have to, you know, I have to do something else. And, you know, I remember one day after I, I was um, out of office and, and Jan and I, and, and, you know, my wife, Jan, was also thrilled that she'd have more time with me and I'd have more time with her and our children. And we, we took a, a weekend together and we were at a hotel and we were just there talking by the elevator and talking and talking. Next thing you know, she looks at me, she says, you know, Bernard, if you don't press the button, the elevator won't come. <laughs> and there's nobody around to do the small things that you get used. Somebody's doing for you. And that's a real transition. And yeah. what I learned there is Dion wasn't going to do it for me. But the, yeah. the experience that you gain and, and the world that you live in when you're in office as premier, there's really, I, I agree with Christy and Dalton, nothing compares to that. The intensity, the energy, and the motivation that we all have to make things better. That's what brought us to public life. And the opportunities that we have make it so incredible. But then one day, you know, you realize, okay, Life moves on, the people move on, the elections move on, and you have to do something else. But the knowledge and the ex experience and the expertise that we all gain in office have become very valuable once we, we leave office. And now I'm, I'm the head of, uh, CEO of a co company, Medivy Blue Cross. We're the largest Blue Cross provider in the country. It's very satisfying work, but I agree with Dalton and Chris, it doesn't quite compare 
to what I used to do, but you can't go back. It's, it's not you. And you have to realize, you know, how fortunate we all were to be able to do it and to serve. It, it truly is an honor, but then you cherish the other aspects of life when now we have more time with our families, with our children, with our friends, and it's just a different life. And frankly, I, I've believed all along that I was really blessed to be given the opportunity and life has been good to me ever since. Okay. And so you've all mastered the art of pressing the elevator button now. Yes, now I know how to do that. <laughs> uh, Bernard, let me, I, I, let me start with you on the next question. Uh, as you reflect on, on your career, uh, would you, um, with the ups and downs that, that politics has, um, would you recommend to young people that they get into politics? I would, but with certain conditions. You have to go into politics for the right reasons. And if people go in because they're, they're seeking adulation and glamour and uh, fame, don't go, it's not worth it. But if you want to get involved because you, you want to make a contribution, you want to make a significant, there's certain ideas that you want to bring to the table or even ideals that you want to pursue, absolutely go do it, but you have to do it 100%. Um, you know, often people come and ask me and they, they, they're thinking of running for office. And I say, if you're going to do it, you have to do it with 100%, a bit like the, uh, Joe Biden said today, 100% of your soul has to be in it. It's, uh, it's all consuming, but when you do it, it's so satisfying when you can bring about change and make things better for your community, your province and your country. Uh, as we've all said, there's nothing that compares to that. But the one thing I would say, and I'm, I'm sure we, we probably all agree on this, uh, political life is very different today than it was even you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago because of social media. Some of it is very good, some of it not so good. And it can be hard on individuals, it can be hard on families. I compare it a bit like a boxer. If you're a boxer in the ring, you expect to get hit. And when you're that boxer, you go in the ring and, and it's part of the sport. But when your family or your friends your spouse or your children see you get hit in the ring or your mother or your father see you get hit in the ring, it hurts them more than it hurts the person in the ring. And with social media, there are more hits now than before. So I would say to young people, if you have something to contribute, you have ideas that you want to promote, absolutely do it, but do it with eyes wide open. Yeah. Uh, Christian Dalton, your thoughts about recommending to people that they get involved in politics? Well, I always encourage people, especially young women, to do it because, you know, there's a double barrier for for women, I think, um, not just being young, but also being women. And just, you know, because of the stages of our lives uh, develop differently from from men. I would, um, I, you know, but I, I think that young people, especially now, Gen Z should be getting into politics because we are facing, I just think we are facing some of the most uh, difficult issues Canada is going to face as we come out of COVID. I mean, God knows this has been a, a terrible time, but um, the, when you look at our ability to be able to continue to support our healthcare system is diminishing every day. Well, our kids deserve to have a healthcare system there. And how how is government going to look after that? And I, what I see governments kind of tend to, what governments tend to do is govern for their own age group and the people that are older than them. And we really need a lot more young people in politics who are thinking about the world in a modern way, but also really thinking about what's going to be there for them and their kids. That isn't happening right now. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about what kind of fiscal situation Canada is going to be in. But, you know, you look at the, um, the, the diminishment of our, of our ability to support ourselves through a natural resource sector. You look at the terrible slowdown in the economy and so many traditional friends with very little to replace it. And then you look at the impact that that's going to have on our ability to provide social programs. We need young people with new ideas, with totally different ways, you know, um, approaches to things, but also with a completely different, much longer term perspective than the ones politicians, you know, I'm 55. I think, you know, we have enough 55 year olds plus in politics. Let's get some young people with fresh thinking in there. So let me just pick up on what Christy's saying because I agree with everything she said and with what and Bernard's perspective as well. Um, the fact of the matter is, given the pace of change, young people today have grown up in a different world than the one that we grew up in. And now we are presuming to make changes in that world. I think it's really important that young people be at the table, whether it's at a boardroom table, whether it's at the government table, 
they need to be in positions of influence because they better understand that world and they can help us better shape that world. The other thing that I would say, Andrew, is that, you know, uh, this notion of getting into politics and I would definitely recommend that young people enter into politics. Most people understandably choose to lead quiet, comfortable, anonymous lives of convenience in the stands. And, and most people would say, why would I ever set foot in the arena? And you do that because, you know, my dad was in politics before me. And oddly enough, when he was alive, I said, there is no way on God's earth I will ever set foot in the arena. But ultimately, I decided that I wanted to do that. And one of the things he told me was the uh, ultimate reward of public service is found in the service itself. Yes, there are risks associated there, associated with political life. Yes, there are real challenges. Yes, it's a contact sport. But if you want to make a difference, and I think most people yearn to make a difference and to do more than simply occupy space and consume goods, but rather do something of enduring value during their 85 years. There are all kinds of ways to do that, but I still think politics is a wonderful way to make a contribution. Okay, can I, can I ask you to, to shift a little bit, talk about the rough and tumble of politics. So politics is a bit of a rough and tumble sport, but there's a cliche that things are just getting rougher and rougher all the time. Is that your observation? How do you think we can get away from that? So. This is a discuss among yourselves question. Um, maybe we'll start with Christy and then the other two can join in. Um, well, as I, I, I watched Pence get in the car today and I saw him driving off and I thought, thank God that's over. Thank God that era of unkind war, you know, 24 hour war is finished. And um, I, so I think that's gonna have an impact on hopefully on our professor here, but I don't think we're going to get rid of the impact of social media, which has really fundamentally changed the way that we dialogue with one another. We do need to find ways for real dialogue to real civil dialogue to unfold. And I think, I think also though, on the other side of it, um, we need to be a lot more tolerant of people whose views are different than ours. And so, you know, Biden said today, not every disagreement has to end in total war. And I feel like we do live in an era where it's really hard. We put barriers in the way of communicating with one another because we demonize people immediately for disagreeing with us. And I always said to my son, you know, you just, you gotta understand, for example, that not every Trump supporter agrees with everything he did. Like you can't say that every Trump supporter is necessarily a sexist or a racist. You know, some of them just vote for him because they wanted lower taxes, but we gotta take the time to talk to people talk to each other, and then we, that's when we have a chance to persuade them. And I think that's a real challenge for us. Again, not necessarily a challenge that people in my age and above are gonna be able to get our hands around because we didn't grow up in it. But I think that there we have to be um, supportive of free, free speech in this country, free ideas at university, allowing people to say the things that are on their mind, and being a, and the courage to confront them in a civil way, to to uh, to talk to them and persuade them about why they might be wrong. That's I think the basis of any great civil society, and I think it happens on both the left and the right of the political spectrum. Go ahead, Dalton. Thanks, thanks, Bernard. Um, I think that in truth, politics has always been rough. And you read about how politics was practiced in the 1800s or the early 1900s, and there's there's no less you know rough and tumble than there is today. I think what's happened today, and is maybe it's related to that old saying that I know my colleagues would be uh, familiar with, which is um, laws are like sausages. The, the 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 more you understand how they're made, the less respect you're going to have for them. And what we did was we. Of, for all the right reasons, and I, and I would not argue against this, but we introduced more transparency. We brought TV into our houses of parliament. And now we have uh, the regular media, then it became 24 seven media, now it's all amped up with social media. So it gives us a chance to amplify and leverage the negatives in politics. And it gives us an opportunity now to retreat, of course, into our, our own realities, our own kind of 
ghetto chambers of facts, uh, which may, may not, not be based on actual uh, facts. So I think it's, you know, I think around the world today, uh, people of goodwill uh, in witnessing the events that unfolded in DC um, um, breathed in some fresh air. And I think I think remain hopeful. And I think, you know, I'm just gonna, I remember something that George Schultz said just recently. He's a hundred years old. Uh, he served under three Republican presidents. And he said, uh, trust is the coin of the realm. When trust is in the room, whether it's the family room, the classroom, the boardroom, the union room, or the government room, then good things are going to happen. But if trust is not in the room, it's hard for good things to happen. It's all about trust. Everything else is details. And I think we're going to have to find a way to reconnect with trust and to understand that all good, I think all good public policy, enduring public policy, is the end result of some compromise. Nobody gets their, all their way. You've got to find a way to broker competing interests. It's uh, it, yeah, compromise, and and but compromise has become a bad word, and yeah. it shouldn't be. And, and there are nuances, and to the point that Christie was making, um, not everybody that votes one way, like not everyone that voted for the three of us, agreed with everything we did. And exactly. I know that for a fact because I know that my wife Diane does not agree with everything I, I did, and she said she voted for me. <laughs> so I think it, it, there are nuances, and we can't lose that in public debate and discussion that there are shades of gray, there are nuances. It can't all be all one or the other. The, the specific challenge of this era is the, the need to respond immediately. So something happens, you need to respond. It used to be 24 hours, then was cable news every hour. Now it's instant. Something happens, you have to be on Twitter, and you have to somehow explain large public debates in 140 character, and that becomes your position. And that favors simplistic views. and 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 unfortunately, and it caters often to the extremes. So we, we have to find ways to use those tools to favor transparency, accountability, and discussion, while at the same time realizing that some of the challenges we face are nuanced. And it's not all black, it's not all white, it's not all up or down, and we need to be able to have a discussion. You know, most of us, when we were in, the, in our legislatures, you'd look across the aisle, yeah, you disagree with them, and yes, it, it was rough at times, and for some of us, it's one of the reasons why we also enjoy, you know, we're public life. We didn't just take the hits. We gave the hits. I, I heard Christy get some pretty good hits across the aisle. And I know Dalton did as well. We all do. We, we enjoy that part of it. So we, we have to temper our own uh, nature at times. But I'd look across the aisle and I'd realize, you know, of the, the couple dozen that were there, I'd agree with them on mostly not everything, but a lot of things you would agree. But when you get to the bait where you have to show contrast, then we highlight where we disagree. And as long as we understand that's a process to bring better ideas, it doesn't represent that there's a, a great division in the country. And that's really the, the art of the possible that comes from public life. Right, and it's hard, it's hard. I would argue that the circumstances that obtain today discriminate against thoughtfulness Right. It's very hard to get a thoughtful, positive message out. Just it's a yeah. very it's a big challenge. And, and we have, you know, this whole notion of clickbait and editors watching what people are clicking on. Now, people will tell you we hate that when you politicians, you know, call each other names and you and you get personal and and you get into partisan bickering. But people still a lot of people click on that stuff. I recall what the head of, I don't know whether it was NBC said when Trump was elected, they said, he said, bad news for America, great news for NBC. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the personal part of it for women is a little bit different, too, because, I mean, I can remember the stories about what my hair looked like, how much weight I'd gained, what kind of shoes I was wearing. I mean, it was, it was really hard to actually talk about it. You know, it was hard to talk about the development of a natural gas industry in British Columbia for export when that was, there's only so much time in the day for the news Absolutely. guys to devote to it. And they're yeah. my, I, I, someone um, in my son's life came across a picture of me that is being used to por promote clickbait pornography on Pornhub. 
And you think, well, how is, you know, like I'm, I'm the only woman ever elected twice in Canada, and here I am being used to sell, my image is being used to sell porn. I feel like for women, there is a whole different kind of um, level of personalization that happens that I think we feel is really scary because nobody wants those kinds of outcomes and it's just getting more and more, I guess, entrenched in the discussion for, for at least my half of the population. I, I completely agree with what you're saying, Christy, and, and we have to be aware of that. And all of us have to make the environment more attractive and safer for everyone, but especially women. It's uh, the, 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 the level of nastiness that is, uh, that is you see against women uh, in politics. As, as across the level that you wouldn't see before this generation. Yeah, people may yeah. have said those things in a bar. They may have said those things among themselves at home, but now they do it online and everybody sees it. And then there are mobs online that attacked individuals and, and they'll attack. And we, we've seen it in, in, in Canada, we've seen it in the US, we see it in Europe. And that mob can be, and it doesn't have to be a large mob as, as long as it's persistent. It can be very hard on individuals, can be very hard on women and men, women more so, and it, it impacts their families as well. And that's real. That That is real. That is a real consequence of the new media, that and that has exploded in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. And it's fair to say that that male politicians get, get uh, attacked for their policy positions, but uh, women politicians, not so much the policy positions, but get attacked in very vitriolic, uh, sexist, and misogynist ways that, that men don't have to face at all. Yeah, and I think, you know what, it's incumbent on male politicians in particular to recognize that, to identify that publicly, and to say that's not on. Right? Mm -hmm. We've got to make, yeah. politics is challenging enough, mm -hmm. right, without imposing a special burden on women. And I can say, Andrew, that when I first got elected, we were 13 male premiers. By the time I left, Premier of BC was a woman, Alberta was a woman, Quebec was a woman, Newfoundland was a woman, none of it was a woman. And I had an opportunity to debate in that new environment. And it was and uh, first of all, I will not, I will say that women have elbows that are just as sharp as the men if you go into the corners with them. But we were more productive. Uh, we were more determined to come up with a uh, positive outcome. You know, I, you know, I grew up in a, a family of 10 kids and my old man, my dad used to say, nobody here is as smart as all of us. Nobody here is as strong as all of us. So if we're going to effectively assert ourselves in a highly competitive global economy, we need everybody, and we need everybody represented. Okay, I I, I would like to, I, I'd love to carry this on a bit more, but there are a few other questions I want to uh, get to. So we'll uh, I'll ask you to be a bit briefer as we do that. But just on, on this issue of, of politics, we've seen some pretty um, polarized politics taking place in in the U.S. Um, and I. And it, we can debate long and hard about, about Donald Trump. Was, was he just a reflection of what was there already? But my question is more, do you see us and Canada getting more polarized? Do you see some of that polarization uh, seeping over the border? Uh, Bernard, I'll ask you to start. Well, there is polarization, but there, there was before. It just may be more in the open now. And, and these we, we don't always share the same reality. And, you know, if you really want to see the... I've always, I find it fascinating every day. I, I'll, I'll go and I'll read what's on CNN and read what's on Fox News on the same event, and it's two different worlds. And if people only chime in on one or the other, then it amplifies their view of the world. Do we have some of that in Canada? Yes, we do. Not to the extent that they had it in the U.S. And let's not, you know, let's not kid ourselves, not because there's a change at the top today that all of that has disappeared. It, it will manifest itself in a different way. But I, I don't think we have the same level here in Canada, but we shouldn't, we, we, you know, we shouldn't sit on our laurels and expect, oh, well, we're better than everybody else. It won't happen here. 
It can happen here. It can happen from the right. It can happen from the left. As I like to say, it can happen from up or down. Politics is no longer just one spectrum of left to right. There's so many other issues and division. But we, as we were saying before, we have to differentiate between what is a different point of view and what is polarization. And it's okay that we're not all the same way. Democracy is not meant to be that we all agree. You know, the worst countries in the world is where the leaders get 97% support and the other three forgot to put the ballot in the box. So it's okay that there's different points of view. It's great that we have elections and there's conflict of ideas and, and, and approaches. That's what, that's healthy. But it, that could lead to polarization. It doesn't mean it's polarization. Do you mind, do you mind uh, the other two, if, if I move move ahead to the next question and you can come back to this if, if you feel. Um, Canada-U.S. relations. So there's a new uh, a new government in the in a new administration in the U.S. starting today. Um, are things going to look better, or are they going to be tougher? And certainly on 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 the um, on, on the on the on the XL gas line um, a pipeline. I think we've got a bit of a problem there. Uh, Christy Clark, what are your thoughts about Canada U.S. going forward from today? Yeah, you know this is one of those cases of. Um, yeah, when when a new when the new government comes in, we're always so hopeful. We do this in our own in our own case as well. But there's a whole bunch of things that you conveniently didn't think about because you were so anxious to get rid of the other guys. Um, so I think that I think that Biden's uh, position on Keystone XL was predictable. It's wrong. It's totally irrational. It makes no sense for America, or and certainly not for Canadians. Um, but you know, he's trying to please a constituency within his party and it costs him nothing to do so. I think that's going to be a, a real hit for Canada. And again, I'm always thinking about our healthcare system. How do we make sure it's there for our kids? Well, counseling projects like that in that you know, kind of incremental step-by-step -step diminishment of our natural resource industry is having, is I think an ir irrevocable impact on Canada's ability to provide for each other. Um, and I think that the Buy America stuff is something he's been very firm on. I mean, no less firm than Trump. Who knows, he might actually be more effective than Trump on it. And I think we should worry about that. Um, I think that there'll be some, you know, there's some great things. We, as Canadians, depend on a stable, free trading world order. And, I, you know, the Paris Climate Accord being, uh, being, you know, getting back on the table with America is great. I think getting back supporting NATO and those trade alliances with our traditional um, allies around the world would be great for Canada as well. So I think there's some upside and there's some downside. I also think that, <laughs> weirdly enough, um, when Joe Biden raises taxes in the United States, suddenly this high tax jurisdiction is going to become more competitive, not because we we tried for it. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I think there's some ups and there's some downs. I don't think it's going to be easy. And I don't, you know, I don't think Biden's going to be great for Canada um, any more than Obama was great for Canada. I just think that they're going to be better. They're going to be moral leaders in so many ways. I think they're going to do a great, a much better job on the international stuff and on the trade stuff. So there's some good stuff for us there. Not all of it is great, though. Yeah, uh, Dalton, your thoughts? Well, you know, they've got their own interests, right? And I think, I think we need to start by recognizing that. The good news is is what's been restored south of the border is sanity, stability, predictability, and civility, all right? That doesn't mean we're gonna get everything we want, and I agree entirely with Christy. I think that um, Biden's decision not to proceed with the Keystone Pipeline, that, uh, that is too closely identified with the environmental movement uh, for him to have gone ahead with it, so I don't think he had much choice there. There is gonna be a bit of a green wave, and I think we should be looking to do what we can to sell clean energy to the US. I think we should be looking to see what we can do to um, um, uh, support our clean tech industries, green tech industries. Um, I think we should be looking to see if we can build those car batteries here, uh, in addition to being parts of the auto, um, manufacturing um, uh, industry. Um, so there's, there, there are gonna be some ways for us to uh, climb on to some, some new opportunities there. But you know, I would bring it down to, I would say we have three priorities when it comes to this new administration. Relationships, relationships, 
relationships. And um, um, and and those those premiers themselves have responsibilities. Would argue to establish ongoing relationships with their counterparts parts on the other side of the border. So they under so we remind them uh, just how important we are to each other. And in Canada, you know, we can't forget that we run a store. Seventy-five percent of the products that we sell are sold to one customer. So we've got to make sure we are constantly investing in the quality of that relationship. And the last point I'll make is again one that was raised by Christy, but I think it's worth reinforcing. When the U.S. is MIA in the international sphere, that represents a tremendous risk to all of us. So we need them back. We're not going to agree with everything they do, but by and large, they will exercise a positive influence for good. Yeah. Thanks, Bernard. Your, your thoughts about Canada-US? Yeah, I'll, I'll be very quick because I, I, I agree with uh, what Dalton and Christy have said. But it, it, if there's one positive from today is is really on the international stage that we have our traditional ally. Hopefully, will be acting like our traditional ally has in the last hundred years, and that provides stability. And we are together on a certain view of the world in terms of freedom for individuals in terms of free trade as well. There is alignment and there was alignment before and it was disrupted for four years. So having a new administration that will want to, again, uh, promote those ideals around the world and be a partner with Canada and our other allies is very good for Canada. But they have their own interests. And when it comes to bilateral discussions, they will defend their interests, not ours. And so while we wanted to, you know, most Canadians are very happy today to see uh, Trump go to Florida it doesn't mean that the Biden administration suddenly is going to be the best for Canada. They want to do what's right for uh, the U.S. And, and the president has his own political constituencies to satisfy. And today was an example. It was a symbol to do it on the first day. That is, we know what this is. This is a political symbol to part of his base that he will be with them. And that means it could mean hardship for Canada if the pipeline isn't built. That's reality. You don't always get what you want. And hopefully, uh, in terms of building relationship, we know that it's important to have multiple points of contact between Canada and the U.S. It can't just be the prime minister and, and the president. It has to be all other layers of elected officials and business and social uh, people as well. So we have multiple points of contact. They are our closest allies and our biggest customer. Okay, uh, great point. Let, let, let me take that a bit further now and ask you all about the economy. Um, what are your What are your thoughts about rebuilding the economy? Where do we start? Uh, Bernard, I'll, I'll start with you. You you you've obviously run government and you spent some time in the private sector in recent years. Um, what are your thoughts about all levels of government, private sector? What do we need to do? Well, the first thing is the economy has received a hit because of COVID, and we haven't hit peak COVID yet. So this, uh, the pandemic didn't end when we changed the calendar. It doesn't end because there's a change of president in the United States and there will be some lingering impacts. And I am concerned with the level of debt and I appreciate why governments decided to put in place the programs. I support most of them. But at the same time, we have to recognize there will be a day of reckoning for, for all this debt, even though interest rates are low and so on. And that will have a, it will put a drag on the, on the economy. I'm concerned that some elected officials may decide that the only way to deal with this is to raise taxes and create an environment where we don't have investment. I agree with what Christy has been saying at least three times tonight. We have to make sure that we can pay for the social programs that we need. We know that we, we have a, a tsunami of aging population that will require more care. And we saw how fragile part of our healthcare system is in this pandemic. So it'll be important to not simply go back to the old solutions. But the other thing I will say, and, and you know, I'll be as brief as I can, is not all, ask, not all parts of the economy were hurt because of the pandemic. Some parts of the economy actually flourish. I take our own business, you know, we have 7,500 employees in, in nine provinces, and all the employees that can work from home are working from home, and they love it. And there's been, a, in certain ways, a boost of productivity. So there's transformation that's happening in business and there's new technologies that are being used. So there are some good, I, I won't say, the, the pandemic is bad, but there can be some impacts that we learn from this that we can do things differently. And I think we will need to innovate and keep educating our people, 
build the right infrastructure, but we need to maintain an economic and fiscal environment that increases investment and encourages people to work. Christy, do you want to go next? Well, I, I, think, I mean, I agree with what Bernard has said. I think there's just a couple of specific things I would add to it. Um, in terms of COVID now, I think that they have got to figure out how to get Canadians vaccinated sooner. I mean, that, you know, th this has been a real, a real mess, unexpectedly so, because they had so much time to, uh, governments across the country had so much time to plan for it. So I think vaccinations, they got to work harder to figure that out. It may be too late for that. I think they need to introduce a vaccination passport, and I know the Prime Minister has, has uh, refused to do that, but I think there's no better way to encourage people to get vaccinated than having the privilege of being able to go into work unhindered or walk into a restaurant. It'll also allow us to start the economy opening up again safely, um, and it'll encourage healthcare workers as well in long-term care to, to get, it, uh, get the vaccination done. And third, I think they have to address the issues at the border. I think this idea that we're gonna just be you know, nobody can ever travel at all. And heaven forbid you go from Ottawa to visit your ailing grandfather in Saskatchewan, for heaven's sake. I just think they've got to find a, a way to um, make it possible for people to do that safely. And I think that partly is through, through again, through testing and of course vaccinations, if that happens. So that's all about getting the economy open now. And But then I think in the longer term, the medium term, spend money on real infrastructure that can get going now. And I, I do wonder about this green focus. I mean, I think it's terrific to have to move to a green economy. I'm not sure that this is the moment to try and start figuring all that out because we need that economic stimulus really quickly, putting high wage workers, uh, workers to work. And then we do need to be thinking about what's the long-term plan, as Bernard said, because, you know, if we aren't a big economy and, um, the credit downgrade could be a disaster for Canada and for the provinces, especially given that we are facing all these other challenges, like, for example, addressing some of the and repairing some of the um, faults that have been exposed in our healthcare system. I really am feeling it today, I have to say, a little bleak about the future, um, our economic future. Uh, but I think there are things that we can do. And I would say the last thing is it isn't evident to me at all that any governments across the country have the um, brain space, the thought space, to be able to think about what's going on, what they're gonna do next, because everybody is spending all their time thinking about how we're gonna deal with the pandemic. And I really feel like somebody's gotta figure out a way to carve out some space to think about, okay, what about a year from now? What about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? Dalton, I think Bernard, you wanna come back on that? If sure. Go ahead, Dalton. Yeah, um, just to pick up on, on Christy's last point, I think it's really important that we find a way as a country to walk and chew gum at the same time. We find a way to confront this pandemic unequivocally uh, and effectively, uh, while at the same time giving some serious thought and putting into place a plan that helps us build a strong economy going forward. I think I'm a little bit more simple. Simp uh, sympathetic than my colleagues here with respect to the investments that have been made uh, by governments of all stripes. I think they're doing what they pretty well have to do. I think we're still in a fairly good place, debt to GDP wise compared to other places around the world. But I would, in terms of priorities, I think I would, I would, um, I would give some serious thought to going green. But by that I mean. Um, while we are consumed by this uh, particular crisis, there's another one that unfolds, perhaps a little bit more slowly. But I remind people that the six hottest years uh, have been 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. Uh, and also, there are tremendous opportunities. One of the companies I'm with is a renewable energy company. We're in Chile, we're in the US, and we are in France and we're generating wealth um, and clean electricity. Uh, I would also say we've got to go digital in this country to ensure that we are in fact part of that revolution that includes our schools and our homes and every single business throughout the country. We've got to avail ourselves of the opportunities to be found there. 
And the other aspect they would look at is we need to go resilient. We need to, whatever the, however we might choose to define that, what are we going to do when the next pandemic unfolds? What should we, what capacity should we have on the ground here in Canada to respond to those kinds of things? I think our kids should be able to go to school when, whether it's a pandemic or a severe weather event, or even just a snow day, they should do that without missing a beat by being online. Right? And the experience that kids are enjoying today is not where we need to be. Right? I just want healthcare, right? We should we should all be able to see our family doctors now online. Right? I mean, we just we just to me, it's those are three priorities that I would want a government to give some serious thought to. Great. Yeah, Andrew, just before I know you want to move on to another question, but I just want to add there are a lot of things that were done, a lot of spending that was uh, made by governments in the last year. A lot of it was good. And, and Canadians overall are reasonable. The concern is if we feel that this level of debt is somehow acceptable and that there's, it's, there's a significant difference between one-time spending to help people in a pandemic and creating ongoing spending programs that we cannot afford unless sure. we have the economic capacity. And that's the concern I have. I agree with you, Dalton, that currently the debt to GDP is not the worst that it's been in our country, but one more year like this, and it will be. And I am concerned by the thought that a lot of people are saying, well, this time it's different. Interest rates are low. It, it, this time it's different. And how many times in the past have we heard people say, yeah, that time is different. And then reality comes back in and, and the laws of economics apply as they used to, and they will again. So we have to make sure we find the right balance. On the issue of testing, Christy, I think you're 100%. Governments need to be, do a better job with this pandemic in terms of allowing people to test. We, we, we have a situation now, we think it's, you know, it's completely normal that Canadians cannot travel within their own country. And with, if it's a real emergency as it was, absolutely. Is it still now? Yes, for a while. But we can't accept this as somehow this is the new normal, that governments can decide that we cannot travel within our own country yes in the pandemic for a period of time but when we know that there are ways to mitigate that with better testing and, a, and accessible and affordable testing and we, we don't have those mechanisms in place um that's where i think we need to move a little bit faster you know i i, I watch the nfl from time to time every single player of the nfl was tested every day since august i'm not saying every canadian needs to be testing but the mechanisms to make it easier to continue to do certain things exist. And yeah. so if we want to be able to allow our people to travel, it exists. So let, let me ask you, you've all been premiers and, and been involved in interprovincial and federal provincial relations. My sense is, or at least a lot of people feel that there should be more coordination, that maybe the Fed should be getting involved and, and dictating terms a bit more to the premiers. And some of what you're suggesting is, kind of suggesting that there isn't enough happening. Do you think the federal government should be taking a stronger stand or do you think there can be better cooperation between the provincial premiers? Um, and maybe I'll start with you, uh, Christy Clark. Well, I, you know, given, think about this. The federal government put out their RFP to seek um, proposals for how to move the uh, the um, vaccine across the country two weeks before Christmas. I mean, it really, un that really undermined, you know, when we knew that we were getting the vaccine that needed to be moved at minus 70 degrees, we knew that in July. It doesn't give me tons of confidence that the federal government is going to be able to do this better than other levels of government. Um, and but having said that, I mean, as Dalton said, this is you know all different stripes across the country aren't, haven't done a great job with it either. I do think that there is lots of room for provinces to collaborate at, around you know with the federal government, but really to collaborate around how we're going to make sure that seniors' care is improved and made safe across the country. I think we certainly should have learned that by now. I think there's room for a national public health agency that could operate in provinces. And by the way, the national public health agency is something that was recommended after the SARS um, outbreak uh, that particularly affected Toronto, but also Vancouver. 
it, all of these um, solutions were proposed in that, and I think 2004, and almost none of them were acted on. If I was the, if I was, it could wave a magic wand. I would get rid of Health Canada altogether. It's not a federal responsibility. Give all that money to the provinces and to a national public health agency that will coordinate the things that need to tie us together, but allow provinces to be able to innovate um, and have the freedom, untie their hands to be able to, to come up with unique solutions um, province by province. If, if I can add, I, I also think we, we need to realize that there is a role for the private sector in helping governments deal with healthcare. The, the company I run, MetaV Blue Cross, is a health company. It's it's a private company. We are not for profit, but we're there to support governments, to support employers, to support individuals in getting better care. And there's all sorts of innovation that has been, and we've adopted some of it. You know, Dalton, you just mentioned virtual physician that existed before the pandemic, but the way the structure in Canada was, we were slow to adopt. While there's other parts of the world, more than 50% of physician visits pre-pandemic were virtual visits, while in Canada was less than 1%. So we, when we talk about innovation, it's innovation not just in getting the next gadget or the iPhone 217, it's how do we innovate even in healthcare, in education, and looking at old problems and bringing new solutions and new way of thinking. Um, it's been a hard time for governments. Let, let's start with that. You know, A pandemic is hard and all of us, if we were in office today, we know that it would be a tough challenge. And Canadians are very reasonable. They were very supportive of governments. They will continue to be. But if we continue to see, if we see that there's a difficulty in rolling out vaccines in, in 2021, that there's no testing, if we were hoping that this will simply go away, as Premier, <laughs> President Trump said, it won't. So we have to find how we're going to deal and continue to live with this virus for as long as it's here. And that means vaccination, testing, and finding better ways to collaborate uh, among different jurisdictions. Uh, Dalton? I think that, you know, if we stick to healthcare for a moment, um, if the federal government seeks to um, um, impose or intrude or intervene in some way, um, I'm trying to be as positive as I can here, they're going to have to buy their way in because they're not paying their fair share with respect to funding health care across the country. I think that is generally understood. And premiers, I don't know where they're at right now, but it's it's nowhere near where it should be. And I think you know premiers premiers when they go to bed at night, they hear the steady march of boomers moving their way into health care. Uh, into health, you know, uh, expensive healthcare, and we want to be able to meet that need. Okay. And, and I think the feds are going to have to be there um, if if they want to get our attention. Otherwise. Okay. Perfect uh, segue to to the first question I want to ask you from the audience: uh, Should long-term care be added to the Canada Health Act? And I'll start with you, Dalton. I think that um, again, um, I think there's no doubt about it. I we I think. Objectively speaking, there's a sense that we have um, failed to provide the necessary protections um, to our parents and grandparents um, who find themselves in long-term care centers. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for the prime minister to impose standards. Um, it's one thing to provide funding. That's another thing to impose standards. So I think that to me, to come back to what I said, you know, you bring the premiers together and the first issue number one is how are we going to address healthcare funding? And then we can talk about long-term care. Okay, uh, Christy Clark and then Bernard. Andrew, my answer is, my short answer is no. My long explanation of that is that um, the Canada Health Act has already become a constraint on provinces' ability to be able to deliver quality health care. So the Canada Health Act is one of those things that, you know, people think is going to work, except that when you have a standard-setting organization that doesn't deliver any programs across the country and spends a whole lot of money trying to figure out how to enforce standards, what they're doing, all they're doing is stifling innovation. 
and they're trying you know really they've done a, they've really done a, a big uh, a big job on keeping the private sector out of the system which has meant that there's we're rationing healthcare more um, and I don't think we need to add any more elements to the Canada Health Act. In fact, I think that we should be kind of, we should be thinking about opening up the act to allow for more innovation, less, uh, less uh, directives from the federal government. But Dalton is right. They are down to, in some provinces, I think they're down to paying 18%, 18 cents on the dollar. So I guess if they want to go up to 50%, which is what they promised Canadians they would be doing, well, then maybe they could get a little more say about what gets delivered. But the fact is, if you just start adding things, requirements for provinces to pay for more things through the Canada Health Act, all you're going to find is that funding for one thing goes up and funding for something else, knee operations, uh, childhood, uh, you know, ch orthopods, who knows, is all going to go down because it's a fixed amount of money. And one of the reasons, um, one of the reasons I think that seniors care hasn't been properly looked after over the years is that the federal government has traditionally been focused on waiting lists. So there's been a lot of money that's gone into urgent and immediate care for people's knees and and hips and some of those other, um, uh, you know, ambulatory. ICT. ICT, absolutely, and different promises, different things. But so what happens? Okay, well the feds say you have to spend money on this. They'll only give you money for this. Then you take money out of this. And that's why the Canada Health Act doesn't work. Yeah, okay. Bernard, briefly. I'll, I'll be very quick. I, I don't think it's the solution. I, I really don't that the federal government legislating at the federal level will fix this problem, which is a provincial responsibility. The original bargain of Medicare, which was 50-50, doesn't exist, never really exi existed except for the first few years. It's been closer to an 80-20 split in terms of funding. We all have to realize that if we want to provide, and I believe most Canadians realize with this pandemic, that we all need to do a better job in providing better care for seniors. There are ways to do that in their homes. Uh, the, you know, the company, I, I, well, I'm in healthcare now, the, the, the C, I'm CEO of the company is, is healthcare, and we do provide care directly in the home of people. And the goal is to avoid having them going to live in long-term care homes or going to the hospital and they love it. That's what seniors want. They want that care where they are and families like it. The, the other thing is we have to accept that we, we can't look at old solutions and just try to take the old solution and apply it to more and more things. And I will come back to a central point that we've all said tonight, if we want to fund more healthcare, we'll need a stronger economy. We need to maintain that balance. And the tip of the, what we're seeing right now in long-term care is only the start there will, the, the population of people over 65 in Canada will increase by over 50% in the next 10 years. Okay, uh, ne next question. What are your recommendations about, about what governments can do with regards to reconciliation? Um, maybe I'll start with you, uh, Christy Clark. Uh, well, the first thing is, I would say, recognize that the amp, that it, that you can't have reconciliation with First Nations and, and Indigenous people in Canada if we don't cre allow them to create wealth. And what we have done, I mean, the, the result of colonialism, there's a whole lot of terrible things that have happened, including residential schools and many, many other injustices. But ultimately, what we are, what we are living with today is still a system where First Nations are cut out of the economic mainstream. And governments take efforts at every level to say, no, we're going to let you have the right to live on this land, but we're not going to let you benefit from it economically. And my view is, if we want to have reconciliation, we need to find ways to partner with First Nations in economic growth, ensure that First Nations get the benefits of that economic growth, and let them be free to chart their own futures. My God, waiting for bureaucrats in Ottawa to decide what's good for First Nations has not worked for them. And if we want to stem the tide of suicides and uh, incarceration and child apprehension and addiction in First Nations communities, they need to be economically self-sustaining and they need to be able to decide what their own future is going to look like because they don't have to look for governments to handouts anymore. And that means government has to get to treaty tables. Governments, uh, provincial governments have to decide that we are going to share government revenue with First Nations. And that means governments are going to have to give up some money. 
Well, guess what? The money still finds its way into the economy. It still gets spent. And those First Nations can find their, their future forward. So it's a very complicated issue. It's not just as simple as the economy. But I would say, you know, before, apologies are fantastic and useful. Commissions are fantastic and useful. But if that's all that's there, it's empty because we have to find a way to make sure that First Nations have something not just to address the injustice of the past, we have to address the economic injustice today. Okay, um, we're running out of time, so just a quick thought from Bernard and Dalton. I'll, I'll be very quick. I, I remember one of the meetings we had, the first uh, Premier's meeting, and we, uh, we met with representatives from First Nations from across Canada, the, the five large groups, and there's one stat that they shared with us that really stayed with me at that moment. And you know, there's the United Nations Development Index and for years and years, Canada was always in the top three. And in fact, that year, I think Canada was number one. And if you look at the same index and how it applied to uh, First Nation Canadians, they were number 63 in the world. That is quite a disparity. And it, it drove home to me the need that there's all sorts of elements that need to, to be improved but it can't be central government, the national government, or even provincial trying to impose this, these solutions on First Nations. We have to be there to support their efforts. And a lot of things that what Christy said, I, I, I agree with. We have to work with them, we have to listen to them, and, and it can't be imposed. It can't be top-down that we're trying to reverse history. We have to build a better future with them and for all of us. And thank you. Uh, Bernard, I'm sorry, Dalton? Yeah, just one one other point that I would add. I'm I'm a big fan of of education, and um, I don't know if there's a single faculty of education anywhere in this country that is devoted. I mean, entirely devoted to developing in uh, culturally sensitive um, Indigenous curriculum content, teaching methodologies. Um, that's where I would begin. I would begin with young people and ensuring that we are making the appropriate levels of investment of develop, developing them in a way that, that helps them lead um, happy, fulfilled lives. And I don't think we've, we've ever taken that on. Uh, and the feds clearly have that responsibility uh, for Indigenous communities. And I think it's time to pick that up and somebody should run with that. Okay, well, thank you for this. I'm, in closing, I want each of you to take about a half a minute and just give your thoughts to people about the pandemic. I think uh, we're all at, at a point of real fatigue with, with, this, with the pandemic. We've got to live with it. It's going to be a long time yet. You as leaders, uh, how do you encourage people to carry on putting up with this? What, what, are, what are your messages to, uh, to Canadians? And Bernard, I'll, I'll start with you. Well, thank you, Andrew, and thank you for, for having me tonight. It's been a, a real pleasure to be on this panel with Dalton Christie. Uh, my quick message would be we, we all need to adapt. And uh, I think Dalton used the word resiliency. Canadians have shown a lot of resiliency. I think a lot of us were hoping it'd be over by now. Unfortunately, it's not. And so the simple message is care for people around you. Uh, take care, of, and, and that's whether it's at home or in the workplace or even in your community. There's some people that are hurting and we need to reach out to them and support them in this pandemic. A lot of people are alone, while respecting, of course, all the restrictions on movement and, and social distancing, uh, but using all the tools that are available to support each other. It, it really comes down to the fundamental of being individuals and human and helping ourselves with humanity through this pandemic. Thank you, uh, Dalton. Well, that's a lovely sentiment. I fully support that. and. Um, you know, there's an old expression, people are like tea. You never know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. Well, now we're all in hot water. It's been a very long time since, as a collective, as a nation, we've been in hot water. When was the last time we had to confront a common enemy on Canadian soil? I think the last traumatic experience we had was 9-11, and we only experienced that vicariously. So, and I love what Bernard said. I think when it comes to, you know, people being like team strong, how do we demonstrate that strength? I think with our Canadian values, by looking out for each other, by supporting each other, 
by acting responsibly in the face of the pandemic and doing what we have to do to limit its 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 spread. And that's you know I I I understand that fatigue is setting in, but we're going to be in this for some time. And I think it's important that we we dig deep into who we are, what made us who we are, and to look out for each other. It's the only way to get through this thing. Yeah, Christy Clark. Well, I agree with both Dalton and Bernard. They bring a lot of wisdom to this. I would just only add: wear a mask, wash your hands, and be gentle with your neighbors. Um, you know, some people are not doing this all right, and I feel like I feel like throwing judgment at them is probably not the best way to try and get people to behave better. But you know, we are going to get through this by I think by giving to others as we get through everything. Selflessness is such an important part of, of creating resiliency. And so make a meal for a neighbor, take someone who's in quarantine's dog for a walk, phone your great aunt who's alone and stuck in a, in a care home, reach out as much as you can, do those small things and remember, really, I mean, it's great for them, but boy, being selfless and helping others is gonna get you through it. Thank you. Thank you, all three of you, very much. I just want to uh, remind our audience that our next uh, webinar is on February the 16th at 1 p.m. on the theme of energy affordability. We'll be talking about some of the issues we touched on today. We'll have representatives from natural gas, electricity, fuels, and nuclear energy, uh, as well as a couple of uh, members of Parliament to talk about that. Uh, Premier Dalton McGuinty, Premier Christy Clark, Premier Bernard Lohr, thank you very much for your time this evening. Uh, thank you for serving Canadians in various ways as you did when you were in public office and as you continue to do that. And thank you for taking the time today to share your thoughts on a series of very important issues to all of us. Uh, stay well and uh, wash your hands regularly, as, as Premier Clark just told us. Very good. Thank, thank you, Pearson. Good night. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it.